0: This morning's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 to 10. The title for this morning's message is Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Part 3, Distinct Roles. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 to 10, and the Word of God says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, We pray now that as we continue to walk through this so important passage regarding biblical manhood and womanhood and how the two genders are to relate to one another, how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom and discernment and guidance. We pray that you would grant us humility and a willingness to bow before your word. And that that we would be reminded, Lord God, of what we read this morning in the reading of the law from Exodus chapter 20. That uh, you are steadfastly faithful and loving to all those who love you. And keep your commandments. And so, Father, we pray that we would be um, just such a people. That our heart's greatest desire would be to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And that we would desire to demonstrate our love for you by living in obedience to your word. So, Father, we pray that you would be with us now in this place. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> when, uh, when people get hired for a job, most of us have experienced this. When you apply for a position with a company, there are usually two important things that everybody wants to know when you're the one applying for the job. Number one, what is the position I'm being hired for? Right? We all want to know that. Uh, that's, uh, that's just assumed. And if they don't tell you that, you're going to ask, right? what am I being hired for? And number two, what is the job description for that position? Typically, we want that in writing. We want to know what's expected of me as I go into this place of employment. And we ask these two questions. We may ask a lot of other questions, but we're always careful to ask these two. We ask these two questions uh, for several reasons. Number one, we want to know what we're supposed to be doing. On day one, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I being hired for? Because if I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, if others don't know what they are supposed to be doing, then... Chaos will reign, right? Fights will start and frustration will mount. We all understand that. That's just common sense. And you can only imagine the chaos that would begin if if a contractor hired a group of construction workers to build them a house, gathered them all together in one place and said, Okay, I want all of you to build me a house. Have a nice day. I'm leaving. They're all standing there looking at each other. Well, who's in charge? I mean, how do we organize this? We also want to know the answer to these two questions because knowing our position helps us to know, again, as I just said, who's in charge? We want to know who can and who cannot tell me what to do. Who do I answer to? And who do I not answer to? Right? Am I being hired into a management position where I'm the one giving directives or am I a worker bee where I'm going to be given direction? Where, where is my place in this organization? We also want to know the position that we are being hired for and have a written job description for that position so that we are not taken advantage of. Right? We don't want to be taken advantage of. We want to know. what I want this in writing. What is my job description exactly? So that they're not asking me to do all kinds of crazy things. So that I don't end up doing my boss's job without realizing it. My job, his job, or her job. While he or she just sort of kicks their feet up and sucks a paycheck. And you're doing two people's work. We don't want to be taken advantage of. What a job description. What am I supposed to do? It's also important that we know the answer to these two questions when being hired by a company so that we get what's coming to us. So we get our fair share, right? Is this full-time or is this part-time? Because if this is full-time, shouldn't there be some benefits that come along with this? And shouldn't I get a certain amount of hours if this is full-time? This is part-time and I'm not getting any benefits, then you're not going to schedule me for 45 hours, right? If this is part-time and I'm not getting benefits. Or if this is an upper management position, then does that come with a cell phone or maybe a company car or maybe it's some stock that's going to be given to me if this is a, a worker bee position? We, we want to know so that we get what's coming to us. We get our fair share we all understand the importance of knowing the answer to these two questions when applying for a job when entering an employment relationship with a company that we can quit at any moment right? we ask these questions and we want to know as we are entering into a employment relationship with a company that we can quit at the drop of a hat I'm not happy with this company I'm going to find a new job, I'm done, I'm moving on. Right? Nothing immoral about that. Yet, so many people enter into a lifelong relationship of marriage without this information. Without this information. What is my position within the relationship? And what's the job description? What am I supposed to be doing in this relationship? We enter lifelong commitments without asking or understanding these two basic questions. The result is that many don't know what they or their spouse is supposed to be doing. Thus, chaos reigns in marriage, fights are endless, and frustration mounts. Because I don't know your job and I don't know my job. We're going to just battle this out and try and figure out the pecking order. And maybe we will and maybe we won't. But it will lead to years of misery. The result is that no one knows who's in charge. Who do I answer to? Who do I not answer to? Thus there is this lifelong power struggle that goes on in so many marriages. Competing with each other. Trying to dominate the other. A tug of war over a pair of pants. The result is that one spouse often ends up being taken advantage of. Without knowing their position, without knowing their job description, without knowing their role and responsibilities within the marriage, often one spouse ends up being taken advantage of. The wife goes out, she works 40, 45 hours a week, she brings home the bacon, she cooks it up in the pan, she cleans up after dinner. She gets the kids ready for bed and for school the next day. She helps them with their homework. All the while the husband is watching football. She does her job and his. Well, the husband goes out and he works hard at a job and brings home the paycheck. And the wife says, thank you very much. I'll just take your money. I'm in charge. I run this ship. You simply provide the financing. The result is that often spouses do not get what they deserve. When, when people go into the marriage relationship without understanding their position, without understanding their role, without understanding their job description, they do not get what they deserve. They are not treated in the way they deserve to be treated By God, the woman is not treated in the way that God commands she ought to be treated within the marriage relationship. The husband is not treated the way he ought to be treated within the marriage relationship. Because people go into a lifelong marriage relationship without knowing two questions that we always ask. When being hired by a company. As we continue in our series this morning on biblical manhood and womanhood, Paul is now going to touch on the distinct roles of men and women, husbands and wives. He says that in verse 8 For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, to be sure, I want to remind you of the context here. To be sure, Paul is specifically in this section from verse 2 all the way down to verse 16. In this section, Paul is specifically dealing with the cultural issue of head coverings. Right? We don't want to lose sight of that. That is what he's doing. He's dealing with the cultural uh, issue of head coverings, whether women should or should not wear a head covering when engaged in corporate worship. And uh, what exactly is that head covering? But, as I said uh, many weeks ago when we began this series, along the way as Paul is making that argument and as he's moving toward verse 16 and 17 where he'll make his final and ultimate point on the matter, he makes several significant points regarding the relationship between husbands and wives. It's a a multifaceted argument that he is making. And so we want to take the time to slow down and look at these specific points that Paul is making as he is working his way toward verses 16 and 17. And so in verse 8, Paul is actually offering an explanation for what he has said in verse 7. And we looked at that last week. Remember in verse 7... Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What a strange thing to say, right? Man is the glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. What does he mean by that? Well, we And, and why does he say that? Well, we talked a little bit about that last week. We talked a little bit about that uh, last week. But here... Paul actually offers his own explanation in verse 8. And he says, For, right? So here's why Paul says in verse 7 that man is the glory of God, woman is the glory of man, for, so here's the reason that Paul offers, man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. Man. So in answering the question and in offering an explanation, Paul references the created order. He points us back to the Genesis account in, in the book of Genesis. He references the, uh, the created order uh, that Adam was not the source of Eve, but rather the other way around. Eve comes from, or Adam is the source of Eve. Eve is not the source of Adam. Adam. Eve comes from Adam. Adam does not come from Eve. This implies authority and it defines roles. Just that very fact, that one simple fact that Eve comes from Adam. It's not just that Eve was made second. This is what Paul wants us to understand. It's what he reminds us of. It's not just that God made Adam... And then later, completely independent of Adam, makes Eve. Yes, Eve is made second, but she's not only made second, but she is made from Adam. Adam is the source of Eve. Man is the source of woman. Therefore, this implies authority and defines roles. In other words, that God is the source of Adam implies it would have been implicit to Adam that God has authority over Adam. Adam would not have questioned that. You're God. I came from you. My life is derived from you. My existence is derived from you. Therefore, you have authority over me. We see that even today, right? We understand that concept actually. It's understood that parents have authority over the children because children come from the parents. Right? I often remind my children when they try to get bossy with each other, you don't have the right to tell anybody else what to do. If you want to tell somebody what to do, grow up and have your own children. But children come from the parents, therefore the parents, by default who give them life have the authority over their lives. Eve's life came from Adam. Adam is the source of her life. That Adam was formed first and then Eve was formed from Adam is also the argument that Paul uses to to define the role of women in ministry. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 to 13 Paul writes this let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet He says that twice now rather she is to remain quiet Why for Adam was formed first And then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now in verse 14, Paul is not saying that Adam wasn't deceived, but rather that she was the one who was deceived first. And so the greater burden of culpability lies with her. But notice verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul is referencing not just an order. It's not just one and two. While that is true, it's also the fact that Eve is derived from Adam. Eve, The source of Eve's life, the source of the woman's life is derived from the man. This language that Paul uses of women learning quietly is something that Paul will address later in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33, middle of verse 33 to 35, Paul will say this, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in Church, that Adam was created first means, according to Paul, that Adam was created first means that the man was given the authority, the responsibility to nurture, to protect, and to teach the woman, right? That comes by default because the instructions that God gives, the command that God gives are given to the man who was formed first. That Adam was formed first and that he is the source of Eve implies that he has the responsibility to nurture, to protect, and to teach the woman. And the woman was created to be nurtured, to be protected, and to be taught. This is primarily Paul's point. Not that women cannot speak in church, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, which we've already covered. Paul says that if a woman is going to pray or prophesy in church, she must have her head covered. The implication being that women can speak in church. How do you pray or prophesy without speaking? But we also know that the prophesying is not teaching. He's not saying women can teach if they have a head covering. He's saying women can pray and they can prophesy as long as they have a head covering. So he is not saying, I want to be clear, that women cannot utter words in church. Rather, what he is saying is that women should primarily be the ones who are learning and not the ones who are teaching or talking. This does not mean that men are superior to women. Does not mean that. Does not mean that men are more intelligent or more valuable. Both are fully made in God's image. But rather that the man was created to be the head of the woman. The one who has the primary responsibility of protecting, nurturing, and teaching both within the family and within the church. Paul goes on to further explain in verse 9. He says, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Woman was created for man. Again, going back to the creation story, Paul reminds us that man was not created for her. He was not created for the woman, but rather the woman was created specifically to be a helper for the man, to be an assistant to the man. They were not created as equal partners. They were not created, the woman was not created to be a co-worker alongside the man. She was created for the man as his assistant adam is in charge and eve does what adam needs her to do however to be fair in the creation narrative we are given little information as to what that looked like right they don't have a home in the way that we have a home they don't have any children yet right they don't have any curtain climbers and they don't have curtains for them to climb so what this looked like in the garden is difficult for us to understand. What it would have looked like in the garden pre-fall is difficult for us to understand. But what we do know is that once sin entered the world, how they fulfilled their respective roles was radically impacted because of sin. Sin, we know from Scripture, causes the woman to desire to usurp her husband's authority and no longer willingly embrace her role. We see that from Genesis chapter 3, for example. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. As God is cursing the woman... It says, And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain ye shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now the the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates the Hebrew as shall be contrary to your husband. I don't think that's the best translation from the Hebrew. Um, although, the Hebrew is difficult to understand what, what is actually being said here. So, to be fair, the ESV is trying to translate the Hebrew in a way that makes sense. I actually prefer the New American Standard Bible with this translation. I think they have it right. They, they actually just take the words literal the New American Standard says this, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So now you may understand why the ESV translates it the way they do. Because what does that mean? Your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. What do you mean it'll be for your husband? What does that mean exactly? Well, I think we're given, we're given a clue from Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Because we see the exact same wording in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. The exact same language. When God is rebuking Cain for having killed Abel. I'll start in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you but you must rule over it. The Hebrew is the exact same wording. Sin's desire Cain is for you but you must rule over it. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think we know what that means. Sin's desire Cain is to dominate you. Sin's desire is to control you. Sin's desire is to have an influence on you. Sin's desire is to lead you in the direction of sin. But you must rule over it. God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Because of what you have done, because sin has entered the world, the woman's desire is to dominate the husband, to control the husband, to influence the husband, to lead the husband in the way that she desires for him to go. And he must ever have to fight against that. Because sin enters the world, there is this constant battle that continues wherein the man will want to be in control and the woman will fight for that control. No longer will the woman willingly, graciously submit to the role that God created her in. It's worth noting as we talk about the fall that Satan got to Adam through the woman. Satan needed to get to Adam. Understand that. Satan needed to get to Adam because Adam was the ultimate target. Because Adam is the federal representative for all of humanity. Adam is. Right? We know that from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin entered into the world through one man, Scripture tells us. Not through one man and woman. Not through Adam and Eve. Sin enters the world through one man. Adam is the representative for all of humanity. In order for Satan to get back at God and to cause all of humanity to fall into sin, he needed to get to the man and he gets to him through the woman. Satan got to Adam... By engaging in a theological discussion with the woman. Now, this is not to say that Adam is not to blame. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying this is all her fault. Because you have to understand, you've got to realize that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, when the, Satan, when, when the serpent is talking to Eve, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. which means that the serpent is talking to more than one person. Adam is standing there with her as the serpent is engaging in a theological conversation with Eve. In other words, Adam allowed his wife to do the talking for him. And Satan got to Adam through Eve. And when Eve bit the fruit, here's the other tragic mistake that Adam made. When Eve bit the fruit, Adam still had a choice at that moment. I can choose to please God, or I can choose to please my wife. I can choose to listen to God, and to listen to His Word, and what God commands, or I can choose to listen to my wife. Adam chose his wife over God. Hence the reason when God begins to curse the man, he says to him in verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Men have been struggling with that ever since. Struggling as to whether or not I should listen to what I know God is telling me to do or should I listen to this woman that I have to live with? If I make her unhappy, I've got to live with her. I know we should be at this church, but she wants to go to that church. Well, I'll just go along with her to make peace. I know that we should raise our children a certain way or we should discipline them a certain way, but she doesn't want me to. I'll listen to my wife so as to make peace. Men have struggled with this ever since. Are they going to listen to God and to what they know God has commanded, what God has said? Or are they going to listen to their Wives. Now don't misunderstand me. Again, I know what I'm saying could be easily misunderstood. I am not implying that we should never listen to our wives. God gave them to us to be a helper. They are intelligent beings. They have great common sense and wisdom. So we ought to take what they say quite seriously. But at the end of the day... God has called men to lead and not follow. Hence, Paul's point is that the woman was created for the man. He then goes on to say in verse 10, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So here, Paul is really offering two reasons for the head covering. Paul is offering uh, two reasons for the head covering. The first is in light of what he has just said in verses 7 to 9. And you catch that from the opening words of verse 10. That is why. What is why? Well, it's what he says in, in verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. In other words, since women are under the authority of men in some sense... In some sense, women are to be and ought to always be under the authority of men, and we can struggle with this. One of the reasons we struggle with understanding this is because of our present uh, cultural context. Because in the first century world, not just the, not just in the, uh, n- not just in the world of Judaism, uh, but in the first century uh, Greek world, in the first century Roman world daughters typically most often would remain under the authority and protection and care of their fathers until they married. It didn't matter how old they became. If they never married, then they lived with mom and dad until the end of their life. But we now live in a culture that makes it difficult for us to figure out how to apply this because we tend to encourage our daughters you know, you grow up, you're about to graduate from high school. Where are you going to go to college? Where are you going to get an apartment? Where, what career are you going to follow? And they get that in their heads, and so they're, 18, they're off on their own. They're getting an apartment, they're going to college, they're, they're their own... Per- well, whose authority are they under then? Aren't they their own person? Aren't they their own authority? But in the modern context, I would say that minimally, even in today's cultural setting... That even single women are still under the authority of their elders in the church and they should still be under the authority of their father. The fifth commandment still applies even if they move away from home. Thus, Paul says that women should have a symbol of authority on their head. They should have a symbol of authority on their head, which demonstrates that they understand, they acknowledge, and they accept their God-given role as women. Because in the first century world, again, people wore things on their head to symbolize their position in society. We don't don't see that as much anymore. Um, Although it wasn't long ago when even in uh, the modern world, we did see that. I mean, you go back to when I was a child, uh, you know, in the, uh, the early uh, uh, 70s, dating myself now, and prior to that, right, police officers, for example, all wore a hat, right? They all had a certain hat on. You could recognize them by the hat that they wore. In fact, many occupations had specific hats that they wore. Nurses wore a certain kind of hat, and you could identify a nurse by the hat that they wore. But especially in the first century world, a king would wear a crown so that when people saw him, they recognized, there's the king. Even if I'm a foreigner who just came into this land, and I see this parade, and there is a person being carried who's got this ginormous gold crown on his head, obviously that's the king. right? The crown on his head is a symbol of authority. It identifies his position within society. And if you were a prince or a princess, you wore a crown as well, albeit a smaller crown, right? It was a symbol that you were a part of the royal family, but because it was a smaller crown, it was understood that you were not the king. Those who would win the Olympics in the ancient world weren't given a gold medal to hang around their neck. They were given a crown of olive branches that were woven together, placed upon them. And as they left the Colosseum with that crown, everybody identified who that person was and their position within society. Thus, Paul says in the first century cultural setting, That women ought to have a symbol on their head that symbolizes they are under the authority of God and of men, if they're single, of their father, if they're married, then of their husband. But there's also a second reason that Paul gives, and I know everybody is itching for me to get to this. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. <clears throat> because of the angels well thanks Paul that makes sense thanks for clearing that up for us <laughs> obviously in the first century world um, Paul assumed that the first century readers in Corinth would have understood this right? this is what happens when you're writing to someone that you know you've had conversations with he's simply reminding them of some truth that they would have been familiar with so he doesn't go into details But here we are 2,000 years later and we have to try to figure out what does Paul mean by this? Because of the angels, how does that help? Well, there are multiple views out there, actually. I I read as many as eight different views on this. But there are three that are the most common. So I'm not going to go through all eight. There are three that are really the most common. Most people are going to ascribe to one of these three views and I'll just briefly run through them. I don't want to spend a lot of time on them. But the first is that angels, <clears throat> Paul says they ought, to have a, they ought to cover their heads when they are in worship because angels in heaven who are obviously present when the saints gather for corporate worship as well, right? Christians aren't the only ones that like to participate in corporate worship. Um, according to Scripture, angels are present. They enjoy listening to the saints sing and pray and take the Lord's Supper in part because it's, some of this are things that they can never participate in. You know the old saying, angels can't sing amazing grace because angels don't understand grace experientially. Isn't that amazing? They don't know what it's like to sin and then be forgiven and redeemed. Angels can't sing amazing grace. So, angels participate in corporate worship on Sunday morning because they are fascinated by what we do. It's amazing to watch these people that God redeemed. And they are there. And so, some think, <clears throat> in light of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, where we un- I understand, not everybody ascribes to this view, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, I think is a discussion of fallen angels... Who inhabit they possess right we know this from the New Testament for whatever reason, for whatever reason, demons like to inhabit physical bodies they want they don 't want to be just a spirit, they want to inhabit physical bodies, and so in Genesis chapter six, it would appear that fallen angels were inhabiting possessing male bodies and then engaging in sexual immorality with uh, women, and this was just <clears throat> something that was atrocious in the eyes of God and is one of the reasons for which God uh, brings about the flood and destroys all of humanity. And so the idea here that something is being referenced by Paul is that if angels see women with their heads uncovered and their head flowing long it may tempt them to engage in it may tempt them to do what the fallen angels did in Genesis chapter 6. Essentially. And we don't want to tempt the angels to sin or to lust after human women, and therefore women should cover their heads and should not allow their hair to hang long and to be flowing in church. I don't ascribe to that view. I think it is a mistake simply because uh, there is very little biblical support for that view. Because, second of all, in Genesis chapter 6, we're talking about fallen angels. ...who have been cast out of heaven... ...because they attempted to rebel against God with Satan... ...and so they've been cast... ...so they're, they are evil... ...and so they engage in evil things... ...right now we're talking about angelic beings... ...who have not sinned... ...and are loyal uh, to God... Uh, ...but uh, also... ...there just isn't biblical support... ...for angels being tempted in corporate worship over women not having their head cut. There's just there's no biblical support for that. And so while it's an interesting theory, uh, I think it is weak. The second is that um, angels are messengers from Jerusalem and that is because the Greek word angelos, literally the definition of the word is a messenger. We get the word angel from the Greek word angelos because we're actually just transliterating the word. We're just transliterating the word. And the reason we do that is to d- differentiate between messengers sent from God and human messengers. Because in the end, that is what angels do, right? They serve as messengers from God. Right? It was an angel that appeared to Joseph and Mary. right? It was, an an- it was angels that appeared to the, the, the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their sheep by night. right? You know the story. Angels are messengers of God. Um, So the word angelos means messenger and in other parts of the New Testament and even in extra-biblical Greek, oftentimes that word is translated as messengers. And some think that in light of Acts chapter 11, for example where Barnabas and Paul are sent to Antioch because they understand the gospel has gone there, people are getting saved, they're doing church. The church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas first to Tarsus to get Paul and then to go to Antioch to figure out what's going on in Antioch here. And so some think that maybe Jerusalem periodically would send messengers to go investigate to see what the churches are doing, make sure they're doing worship right. And Paul is saying, look, because there may be people who are observing... From Jerusalem, you want to make sure that you are worshiping correctly. Again, while there is some biblical argument because of what happens in Acts chapter 11, uh, it seems um, unlikely that Paul is, is referencing this. In other words, even though we see that in Acts chapter 11, we don't see that as a common practice. Um, something that was done regularly. We also don't see the apostles, Paul, writing about it very clearly in any of the epistles. Uh, You know, just be aware that messengers might show up from Jerusalem. We just don't see a lot of, um, we don't see very much biblical evidence for that. The third view, and this is what I think is actually happening, is that angels being created by God and for God Angels who were created by God, right? They derive their existence from God and were created for God cover their heads in God's presence when they worship. We read that this morning in our call to worship. I'll read it to you again. Isaiah chapter 6 Verse 1, Scripture says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angels. Each had six wings... With two, he covered his face. The Hebrew could also mean his head, his face, his head. With two, he covers his head. With two, he covers his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We also see the angels singing that very same song in Revelation chapter 4. As they surround the throne of Christ, they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God who is worthy of all of our worship. And what we see is that when the angels are engaged in worship in the presence of God, they cover their heads. They cover their heads. Thus, since woman came from God and from man... And since woman was created for both God and for man, for God's glory, for man's glory, woman came from God and from man, woman was created for God and for man, then like the angels, they should cover their heads when they are worshiping God. When they are in the presence of their authority who is God, And their husband or their father, Paul believes women should worship their heads lest the angels be offended. Because what that means is that even in corporate worship, as we are here, I believe there are angels that are present here with us who are observing this worship gathering. The angels who are invisibly present here are covering their heads to honor God. Paul says women ought to do the same lest they be offended. Why wouldn't they? We do it. Why don't they? Thus, in the end, Paul's point is simply this. Man came from God and was created for God. Woman came from the man and was created for the man. Thus, by default, this gives each of them distinct roles within the marriage, within the church, and within society. And they, women, should have a symbol on their heads that acknowledges and identifies that they accept their role, they acknowledge their role, and they graciously submit to their roles. So what is that head covering? More to come. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord God, we um, we thank you for your word that instructs us and guides us, though it may be difficult, particularly in this very modern um independent kind of culture that we live in, Um, this kind of teaching these portions of scripture um, can be difficult to accept because to do so is to go against the grain to swim against the current of our culture and of our society But Father, we pray that you would enable us to not make the mistake of Adam and Eve and to listen to the serpent who communicates through the world and through our culture. Help us to not make the mistake that they made to listen to the serpent rather than listening to God, rather than listening to your word, regardless of how... um, nonsensical it may seem regardless of how difficult it may be to embrace Father we pray that you would enable us to simply trust you to believe you and to do what your word commands for both the man and the woman Lord God and I do pray that for both though this message was heavily geared toward women Lord, I pray that the men in this room would understand their role and their responsibility to be the primary one to nurture, to protect, and to teach their wives and their daughters what God has said. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.